0: and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar. We talk about military history from ancient times to modern, and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Paul Dixon, author of The Rise of the G.I. Army, 1940-1941, to 1941, The Forgotten Story of How America Forged a Powerful Army Before Pearl Harbor published by Atlantic Monthly Press, July 7th, 2020. Thank you for speaking with me.
1: Thank you, Chris.
0: So first, um, how did you get into studying this subject and writing about it?
1: Well, I mean, I guess the long version of the story, um, which I end up telling anyhow, is I was born on July 30th, 1939, which was 31 days before the invasion of Poland by the Nazis and uh, the beginning of World War, World war uh, Two, and mm-hmm. so I grew up during the war, and I grew up uh, as a little tiny kid. In fact, it was all around me. I couldn't I couldn't get away from it. My mm-hmm. two uncles were both in combat zones in the South Pacific. Mm-hmm. My parents got Life magazine, the Look magazine, which were intensely pictorial. So even before I could read, I'm leaping through these. Very in you know, a large format magazines, looking at pictures of the war, mm-hmm. and it it affected a lot of things that I didn't realize till later. For example, there were no toys to speak of during the war. I mean, Fitcher Price, the famous wooden toy manufacturer, was making ammunition boxes and Lionel trains and and, and American Flyer trains. Most companies were now making uh, instruments for for ships and for aircraft. So uh, it it was something that I just. It was all about me, and I remember vividly V-E Day. I remember, you know, my whole neighborhood erupting, all the horns honking, and people throwing cans in the street and right. making all sorts of noise. And so, all my life, I've, I've, I've you can do the math. I was born in 30, 39, so I'm, I'm eighty one now. But just my whole life, I've been interested in the war and reading. I've read an awful lot about it, and. And always thought as a writer that it was something I'd like to take a poke at. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you, every piece of it you looked at, there was, a, there was already a bunch of people who had written about it, and, and better than I could. I mean, just phenomenal writing. Mm-hmm. And even with fiction, you had phenomenal pieces you know, piece of work. But all of a sudden, I got really interested a while back in the Louisiana maneuvers. It just sort of struck me as, well, why Why didn't they you know, half a million men in Louisiana and then I started putting it together and, and started realizing that, that, the, that the, the, the real story that nobody had really done coherently, at least in, in my ability to find it, was, the, was, the, was this cheap, really amazing fact that in 35, 1935, when when MacArthur was still um, uh, Chief of Staff of the Army, mm-hmm. he said the Army could fit in the Yankee Stadium. And not only could it fit in the Yankee Stadium, but it wasn't the, the Army wasn't prepared to defend the country. Mm-hmm. It was just a terrible army. And somehow we went from that to the de- the day of Pearl Harbor when we had one an army of one point four million. Mm-hmm. And I and Alyssa they said to me, you know, how do we do that? You know, there wasn't magic. And and, and a lot of people still assume that sort of the grand story is that oh the we were attacked at Pearl Harbor on December seventh, nineteen forty one, and immediately we raised this army from nothing. Mm-hmm. Well, it doesn't make any sense when you think about it mm-hmm. because it was, because that had to have started all of this draft boards, all of the mechanisms by which to give basic training to build barracks, all that stuff had happened before the war
0: um, and then on top of that, the material you know the all the weapons and the um planes all the aircraft, tanks, yeah the yeah. aircraft yeah, everything so um
1: yeah but and, and that was well covered there were a number of wonderful books. About we how we built this amazing aircraft industry. Mm. How we were able to give the British and other allies uh, aircraft even before we entered the war mm. on the lend-lease basis. But but a lot of that was covered. But I, but concerned me was and, and thinking of my uncles and you know the, the reality of the war, mm. where where the men because you needed not only need men but you needed how to uh, supply them. They had to be trained. They had to be well led. They had to be they had to be mobile, they had to be there had to be a supply core behind them that could get as in Louisiana, you know, two million eggs a day were being consumed in in Louisiana mm-hmm. by the troops. And you had to figure out all that. You know, and which was which is equally if not more important than the actual physical building of, of uh aircraft and and munitions and howitzers and other things.
0: Mm-hmm. So, how do you break down the book? um is it more like a personal story or is it uh I don't
1: know it's, its a it's a it's a real look at, it's a real narrative of of the people involved of the of the moments it, it, it reads i mean several reviewers already said it reads like a novel mm-hmm. uh because it's and, and there are real heroes i mean um i mean they're one of the most interesting guys in the book i think the pivot the pivot in the book that makes the most importance. Is in the middle of a very, very divided country, which we were isolationists versus, for lack of a better term, interventionists, to realize we'd be eventually be drawn into the war. Mm-hmm. And a couple of visionaries, uh, but there was one of the guys who, who understood this and predicted it well, well before the, the thing started to really happen was a man named Grinville Clark, was this very interesting lawyer in New York, had been, who, who was very wealthy, from mm-hmm. an old family, uh, but he was a true patriot who basically worried about the future of the country. And he in World War One, he'd actually worked on training officers, college graduates as as officers in the in the uh, army for World War One. But well before the war started, Clark and, and a couple other, for lack of a better term, defense intellectuals, I call them. But but people who could really you know think about what we really needed in terms of defense, one was Henry Stimson, who was eventually Secretary of war um but what happened was he um Clark started really early saying we really needed a draft, mm-hmm. and nobody nobody, nobody went along with him except for a sort of a, a group of elite people uh former generals former former admirals they the, the chairman of the Lord of the New York Times, I mean, a couple of college presidents uh, became really fearful that, that, that both the, the, the the Germans, the Nazis and the Japanese and their warlords were going to eventually form an alliance and try to, you know, try to take over the world, Mm -hmm. which is exactly what happened. So, so early on, Grenville Clark is saying, we got to get a a draft started. This is late in, this is early in 1940 because the, He's, he's starting to, to beat this drum. Mm-hmm. And it, in, a, in a meeting at the Harvard Club in New York, I mean, you can't get more and more establishment than that. <laughs> he and a bunch of them sit down. They've got 100 people together. They hire a PR guy, and they start pushing the idea of a peacetime draft. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, at, uh, what makes nerve, Roosevelt very nervous that she's running for re-election he thinks a, a, a draft will probably be his undoing. George Marshall is chief of staff of the Army, and um, they're, they're opposed to this. What Clark is doing, in a, in a funny way, um, uh, Marshall uh, said he, he sort of resented a civilian sort of trying to lead the Army. But uh, Clark prevailed, and he started to convince people, even in the midst of all the isolationists who opposed it. Mm-hmm. But he convinced them, that we had to have this army, and we had to get it going quickly. We couldn't just pull one together out of our, out of a hat when we were attacked. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, he hires a PR guy, he hires writers, he hires all these other people to get this thing through, and he gets it through Congress in in uh, in September, September thirteenth, nineteen forty. I mean, thirty, right? Forty. Uh, he gets the draft of, uh, passed, and shortly thereafter, there's a registration day. Every American between 18 and 45 years of age has to register. Mm. Very little resistance. People were screaming about, you know, you're imposing, it's a teach time, it should be drafted. Mm. People were, and there were very, very few exceptions, exemptions rather. Mm. And they had to, there were Vanderbilts, Rockefellers, Roosevelts, all drafted in this first draft. And, and, and so from this, this draft, and finally, Marshall and Roosevelt understand how important this is. And even the, the isolationists very slowly start to re- realize we just have to get become defensive mm-hmm. and uh, create this, this great army. And um, so the book is really about the heroics. It's really about the genius of George Marshall, mm-hmm. who basically puts together this army. And uh, he does things that are. He, 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 this is all part of the narrative, but hmm. Marshall does things that, in retrospect, are just brilliant. I mean, one of the things he does right before then he's, he, he calls for these for the draft, he, he has to get all these cans ready. But he realized there were morale problems. So here's the chief of staff of the army, realizing the morale problems, he actually answering letters from draftees who said the food here is lousy, and then he call up the. Or, or, He's gotten in contact with the head of the base. Said, "Why are these guys completely with the hood?" But he was this guy who understood the 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 uh, the the absolute necessity of morale. I mean, to show the extent of of what a genius he was at this. There's one point at Marshall's down here, Fielding, that a lot of these camps, there're tens of thousands of men being sent into these small cities and towns in in the south, the far west just gorging the town with guys with nothing to do on Saturday night. have There's, you know, problems with it. Yeah. He shows up in one of these towns in civilian clothes, checks into a hotel, and wanders around for a couple nights talking to guys on the streets. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows that he's, he's, he's wearing, you know, a regular jacket and, and, and slacks. Mm-hmm. And, and um, I mean, he does that, but he also does things he forces. He forces the beginning of Army O.C.S., uh, Roosevelt and and uh, Stimson, a lot of the people didn't like the idea of taking the most brilliant enlisted guys and taking them out of the enlisted ranks and taking the OCS, which is still which is still in, in existence. Mm-hmm. And he really wanted to start this uh, Army OCS, and and um, Roosevelt said no, and Stimson, who was his titular boss, his Secretary of War, said no, no, we can't, we can't. We don't. We don't want to do this. We want to go, you know, get the new junior officers, the college graduates. And and uh, Marshall said, "Well," and, and he said, um, "If you don't let me have this OCS, I'm going to quit." And they said, "What?" And he said, i I can't, I, I need. I need to get a, a new core of junior officers, and they have to be good. Mm-hmm. And the way to get it is to take the, the best of my enlisted men, and and turn them into officers." And they finally backed off. I mean, here's the here's this guy threatening to quit, mm-hmm. and of course he immediately taps Omar Bradley to run OCS, and hmm. they take basically the, basically they distill the part of the syllabus from West Point, and they move it in, and, and they start. It.
0: I'm speaking with Paul Dixon, author of The Rise of the GI Army, 1940 to 1941. You can find more information about his work at pauldixonbooks If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more military history ranging from the ancient to the modern, please visit warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep up with my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at fullcontactnerd.com and technologyinspace.com. And now back to the podcast.
1: And just one more example, of one, and there are many, many in the book, and they're, and they're t- sort of told in sequence. But mm-hmm. right, right the, in, the, in the fall of forty one, right before Pearl Harbor, Marshall has watched these three huge maneuvers, which he stayed in, in Tennessee, Louisiana, and the Carolinas. These involve you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of men, over 700,000, um, uh, and mostly, you know, uh, draftees. Hmm. Wow. And uh, at the at the end, towards the end, he realizes he's got some really bad senior officers. He's got about 200 fairly senior or very senior officers, including generals, mm-hmm. who are not up to it. They're either alcoholic, they have problems dealing with their men, they're preoccupied with some other. Part of their lives, many of the, uh, a few of the generals in the reserves were more concerned about their businesses than they were about their position in the, in the reserves, But he found this group that he, he felt he had to get rid of. Mm-hmm. And it was, and it was, and the press called it a purge, and he hated the word, but it was, but it was a purge. And they were either moved to sort of innocuous non-combat positions, mm-hmm. or they were asked to retire early. And he didn't go out of his way really to embarrass them, but but it was but it was he just felt he had to get him out of the way. Mm-hmm. And in their place, he has his own group that he's ready to bring up. And it's Eisenhower, Patton, Mark Clark, Omar Bradley, Grunther. And the list goes on and on. Hmm. And these are the guys he brings up and he's got even he has Eisenhower. He has Eisenhower in Washington two weeks after Pearl Harbor, putting him in the war plans division. He's never met Eisenhower, but he knows all about the way Eisenhower has behaved all the way through. Mm-hmm. And he understands also that Eisenhower has this amazing ability to A, want, first deal with his, his men. They had an amazing rapport with his men. And B, had this amazing ability to deal with the with the press, with the media. They just love it. This was just his casual way, his way of explaining complicated military uh, issues. Mm-hmm. And, um, but he grew. He grew. Grabbed this group, He even I mean, he, he was so brilliant. You know, I overuse the word, but he understood that as he brought in all these recruits, is that he would need somebody to make film. He believed that film was one of the great ways of, of telling the story of why we were fighting in the war. Mm-hmm. And he brings in Frank before Pearl Harbor. He brings in Frank Capra, who was probably the greatest film director of his time yeah, and he brings him in to to to, um to make these films
0: you alluded to a question i I want to ask or you you kind of addressed part of it but i can imagine them bringing in all these um enlisted guys and junior officers but how how do you fill the huge need for say middle grade officers you know like maybe captains or majors or lieutenant colonels
1: I think again they were they were the they were he was they were moving them up quickly. I mean they were moving them the best of the to, and the best of the brightest, and he had people out there. He had a lot of his own uh, these other people picking them for him. So mm-hmm. so he had he had he had um, uh Eisenhower had tremendous influence, it was just up and down the line. These other guys were also part of a cohort, mm-hmm. and and so uh, and they had their eyes. These were the career guys. Patton was was very shrewd about getting this, and Patton also had an extraordinary ability, uh, not only to find uh, good officers uh, for his for his divisions, or uh, his division, but his he, he also had an amazing ability of taking uh, recruits and, and draftees and and turning them into absolutely first rate uh, uh, soldiers.
0: How about um, who handled uh, the budgeting for all this? You know, obviously they got the money, but then how do you how do you manage it?
1: Um, that again, that was that was uh, that, uh, it was part of the of staff that, that that Marshall put together in Washington. So mm-hmm. and they were very good, good about that, and they were and they were also very very interested in logistics and and. Um, Get it, being able to move the equipment. So, what they did in Louisiana, the big thing they did in Louisiana and, and the other maneuvers starting in Tennessee, mm-hmm. um, was to, was to put together, uh, a an amazing sort of core of supply people who could move this stuff. Mm-hmm. And Eisenhower, you know, in other words, in, when they're in Louisiana, they're, they're, all of this mock warfare is going in the, in the swamps. Mm-hmm. There's no potable water, you, you know, so they had to bring trucks of water in. Uh, they had to bring tanks in, not only get the tanks into these places, but also bring in the fuel. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and it was, it was, and Eisenhower says later after the war, he said, when we learned, we learned to move the, all this stuff, move an army through Louisiana into the Carolinas uh, before Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. That was what we, that's what we took to Europe. That's how we were able to move across Europe and move up through from North Africa. In, you know, in through Italy into 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 Europe, and then move inland across uh, after the after Normandy, mm-hmm. and um, so so again, it was a, it, he, it was again. Marshall had this extraordinary ability to put together staff groups, and uh, and and uh, interesting thing. I just forgot to say this earlier, but mm-hmm. Chris, but the um, one of the things after mentioned the purge uh, of the of the officers. One of the things later, H.D. Wells, the famous uh, fiction writer, but also Wells, wrote a lot about military affairs. And and during the war, he wrote almost exclusively about the war itself. Mm -hmm. One of the things Wells said later was he said, you know, one of the things that happened during World War II, he said, one of the brilliant things the Americans did, was to purge it's the, the, those those men, those officers, who were not up to the bow.
0: So you were saying that H.G. Wells was impressed that the Americans per, were willing to purge their officers? Yeah,
1: and he, he, one of the things he said, it was, he said, actually, he said it was one of the things that, that the, uh, neither the French or the uh, British had done. And he basically said that he thought that some of the bad decisions that occurred was because they hadn't gotten rid of some of the men who couldn't leave. hmm uh, which is which is interesting, but um, you know, I, it's interesting because Marshall. The more I write, wrote, the more I, I started researching this book in two thousand and five. Mm-hmm. I've written other books in between. This is my seventieth book.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, um, but I, I, my, my, my realization about some of these men who I've always admired, and but, but it was re- reading, 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 researching, going after reports. I just began to realize how phenomenal they were. And this guy, Grenville Clark, who basically is a civilian with a great love of America mm. and and wants to protect her. And uh, later later in his life, he actually gives the money to Martin Luther King and the NAACP Legal and Education Fund to to sort of affect civil rights. I mean, here's a guy that you know, he's tampering and everything, but he's tampering for his belief is the public good in this country. Mm -hmm. And, and, and looking at, at Marshall and his humble beginnings and, you know, some of the things he did earlier for the civilian conservation corps, where he sort of learns a whole lot of lessons about how to deal with, with a citizen, citizen army Mm -hmm. and Eisenhower and Patton and Patton's boldness, even in these maneuvers Mm -hmm. where Patton does stuff that's just crazy, but, but he, but brilliant. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, and, and, um, I my whole frame of reference for the war changed by and I and my book essentially ends at Pearl Harbor so it's it's uh it, it's it was a it was a wonderful time for me to working on this
0: mm-hmm. did you come across anything as to why they didn't or what were their thoughts about um integrating black soldiers into the army
1: that's um, a major subplot in the book and and it and it's a sad one because it there's a there's a great the the black units really or the black leaders really wanted integration uh, they wanted equality and uh, there were there was a, a whole business led by a couple of the major uh, civil rights people um, uh, who came down and wanted to have a march on Washington because of the defense because the defense industries weren't integrated uh, and because. The army and the navy weren't integrated, mm-hmm. and May um, Philip Randolph actually threatened to have a, a hundred thousand man march on Washington in July, on July first, nineteen forty-one, and Franklin D. Roosevelt convinced him not to, got him to call up the march, and of course that march uh, came about later under uh, Randolph's direction, well after the war with the famous. March of Washington. Mm-hmm. But but it's a sad tale. and there were phenomenal stories of inequality. There was one unit, it was a reserve unit, which I think is the most, in a sense, the most emblematic story. It was the 19th, 93rd Regiment, which was part of the 2nd Army. Mm-hmm. It was an all-black reserve group in Massachusetts, and it was uh, all-black, and the officers were black, and uh, every uh, the, there was a it was a it was a segregated it was a Jim Crow army it was a segregated army, right. but this unit wasn't allowed to come to the Louisiana maneuvers, they were barred from coming in with the rest of their army with their uh, larger uh, army, mm-hmm. and the reason was they were so fearful that there'd be a black colonel, and um, you know a, a, a white lieutenant would have to salute him or a white uh, you know. Uh, let alone a private or or a corporal, mm-hmm. and it was that bad. And and the guys, I mean, the, the units did they, they they really fought. The black units, a lot of them fought under the this their own nato, which was the double V, which was victory over fascism and victory over Jim Crow or segregation
2: mm-hmm.
1: and inequality. Mm-hmm. And it, I tell the story towards the i tell, go all the way through to the Truman mm-hmm. uh, edict. And even 50 years later, I end the book by by sort of knitting all this together. 50 years after the Truman uh, edict about integration of the military, uh, the Secretary of Defense, Cullen, who was then, 50 years later, was Secretary of Defense, William Cullen, was head of the uh, head of Secretary of Defense, and he said that finally, 50 years after the Truman edict, finally, that the military had become the best example of racial the best element of racial integration in all of American society it was the most the most not that there wasn't room to to improve right. but it wasn't it had become the model for the rest of American society hmm. and um, and Cohen was one of my, my advisors in the book in fact he wrote a blurb for the back of it hmm. but but i uh, i I think it and and I think that's the one downside of this whole story hmm. and and uh, but again the the, the the black soldiers the African-american soldiers you know they performed well and they and they they struggled to, to get a better deep quality and mm. we're still struggling even in defense industries all the way through the war I mean they finally they just weren't allowed to you know there was one aircraft company the only blacks they would hire would be janitors.
2: Mm.
1: and um, uh, yeah. but that's part of this that's sort of the sub Narrative to the to the larger story.
0: Mm-hmm. So when when they were creating this force, um, I would assume that they would training wise, they would focus on the basics like you know marching, shooting, being able to live outdoors. You know, um, it, was there any more to that um, with this short time period they had?
1: Oh yeah, no, and they no they they acted like a real army. They they learned to do these things in the in these maneuvers. That were extraordinary. Uh, they were extraordinary because they had a lot of people working with them, and so Piper Cub. You know, they 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 loan them a whole bunch of aircraft, which of course become these little, these small aircraft. So they to learn to use these aircraft. They've, they're they're experimenting with new tanks and new munitions. Mm-hmm. Um, they're 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 building. They're doing building pontoon bridges in Tennessee. It takes them a couple of days to put together a pontoon bridge. Uh, as they get moving and learning, moving, learning, uh, all of a sudden they can put together a pontoon bridge in a matter of hours instead of a matter of days. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're doing all of this stuff in this large scale movements. Plus they're learning, they have trucks down in Louisiana and places with, with cobblers, with shoemakers on the trucks who are, you know, filling their shoes. So they learn, they start to learn to do all of these things moving towards the front. Mm-hmm. And the, the great thing about the guys who were the the citizen soldiers, I say that because most of these people were draftees by this time. Mm-hmm. Um, these guys they were a different breed than had been in World War One. They were, they were, they were uh, more. They were even though they come through the depression, mm-hmm. they come through. They, they said that one of the first things a guy would come in, and the first thing he would do, he'd look at an airplane, or he'd look at a jeep, or he'd look at a. Some sort of um, uh, vehicle, armored vehicle, and the first thing you knew, be under the hood of whatever the vehicle was, whatever the uh, all of it was, mm-hmm. you know, looking for a make, way to make it move faster because they'd grown looking under the hood of, hoods of Model A Fords and you know and and LaSalle's mm-hmm. and all these old cars, and so they, they were they were attuned to that whole business. That other thing, which sounds astonishing when you think about it, these guys could read maps. They, and map reading was a real skill in World War one and, and there were mm. talks of these things like lost battalions and things but there was, but there was a real deficiency. They didn't understand them and they, the guys who were coming in in 39, 40 41 um, had grown up on service station gas station uh, road maps. Mm. They could read maps they understood the concept of maps. they understood the concept and they, they could easily learn about terrain and, and such. So they were, so they were an extraordinary group, and they were, and they were, trained them to do an awful lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, they were. He, uh, Marshall was changing the, the old World War I, the, the divisions the, to triangular divisions. So they were learning to, 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 to behave as a unit. Mm-hmm. They also had tremendous deficiencies. They 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 one of the things when, when an enemy aircraft would come up, even though it was blocked, would come over, uh, they'd run out with their their, their brownie cameras and take pictures rather than take cover.
0: <laughs> Let's turn to uh, how you did the research for the book you, you alluded, or you mentioned a few items. What what did he use primarily? Did he go to archives, or um, what sort of research?
1: Well, well, a lot of this stuff, uh, I expected, I had expected for a long time that a lot of it would be uh, in terms of formal reports. There were very few army and, and military documents that uh, survived other than umpires manuals because all of these maneuvers were judged by the great teams of umpires Hmm. uh a lot of it was was going through archives for example um i'll name one example eric severide the great reporter for cbs who had been in europe earlier and then came back and sort of the the highest guy in the um cbs radio at the time and he covered he wrote in his memoirs in I got transcripts of all these broadcasts. I got a lot of transcripts of things that happened during the during the maneuvers. Mm. I also had, got access to all the newspapers. There were a lot of daily newspapers, so I was getting that kind of stuff. And there were a lot of memoirs. There were a lot of historical memoirs written in which people wrote about. Mm. I mean, Marshall and uh, uh, Mrs. Marshall wrote an awful lot about it. Marshall, wrote, Marshall's, the Marshall Archives. Are just phenomenal. And they have they have all of these letters digitized. They've got a huge amount. So I learned heavily on that. I, I use the Eisenhower Library in Abilene. Mm-hmm. Um, I use the Pritzker Military Library in Chicago, which is a, an extraordinary, probably the best place you can imagine to do military research mm-hmm. or research. On them. And I spent days and days there at the beginning. Mm-hmm. They helped me immeasurably. And I used unit histories. I used um, just about everything I could find. I spent an awful, awful lot of time on uh, just developing these sources. Mm-hmm.
0: What part of the research was most enjoyable for you?
1: I think, I think, yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> the, most, the most enjoyable thing was I had these pieces, and I all of a sudden, that was sort of, you know, obsessed with it. All of a sudden, they came together in a story. And the, sto- the storyline was so simple. Mm-hmm. You know, in 1935, the Army fit in the, into um, into Yankee Stadium. And by f- Pearl Harbor, you had a 1.4 million man, man, citizen army, citizen army, because they weren't all these, they were not necessarily the long-term guys. Or they were guys pulled out of their jobs in barber shops or whatever they were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and they... And they um, and and realizing that this is the this was the nucleus of the army that was that went into uh by by the fall of 42 uh they were they were in north africa mm-hmm. and then they were they were they were ready to take on the the nazis on the ground mm-hmm. and so and it was it was not pretty at first but but that was the nucleus of the army that went to north africa up through sicily up through italy and into the into, into Europe in the final days of the war. Mm-hmm. And so you have um it it just was the just once i once it all fell together. It's like doing a big crossword puzzle, you know, and all You're down you're down to about 12 pieces, you know, you got it made. But this was just you know it just all fell together. And i and i actually think it's also it was interesting to me the other thing i kept seeing was there was tremendous division in the country when this happened. This was all done under duress. There was the isolationists who were very, they almost got, at one point in the fall of 41, um, I'm sorry, 40, they they almost took the army down. I mean, the House of Representatives saved the army uh, by a vote of 203 to 202. Oh, wow. And if that vote had gone the other way, Marshall said the, the war would they were going to send away up home Hundreds, uh, of thousands of troops that had already been drafted. There was, you know, so the isolationists wanted to bring them all more early. Mm-hmm. And if that had happened, Marshall said later, the war, it probably would have meant, if that had passed and that had stuck, um, the, the war would have lasted several years longer and that meant another, uh, hundreds of thousands of American deaths. Mm-hmm. And, and so a lot of it was just seeing today, as an old man seeing the country in division and then seeing that the country then in division mm-hmm. and saying to myself, wait a second. Um, the only way we're going is to make it is to get out of this and, and bring us together. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, I that, that was just, and the other thing is a very upbeat story about America. And right now we, a couple of the reviewers you know, have been well-reviewed in the newspapers and things. Mm-hmm. A couple of reviewers said, this is a great story about America, and it's a great story to make you proud to be an American. And um, I, I think that we need stories like that right
2: now.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm speaking with Paul Dixon, author of The Rise of the G.I. Army, 1940 to 1941. You can find more information about his work at Paul Dixon Books. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more military history ranging from the ancient to the modern, please visit warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep up with my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at fullcontactnerd.com and technologyinspace.com. And now back to the podcast. When they were forming this this army, did they expect all these men, legally, you know, I guess they could make them fight through the whole war, but were they thinking in terms of they'd have, like, year-long enlistments and then go home, or was it the idea that...
1: Originally, it was year-long enlistment. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh there was a big movement when it looked like they were going to be extended. There was a movement called ohio it, oh there would be chiefs stenciled o h i o mm. which meant over the hill in October there was some threatening to desert if they got extended mm. but it ended up amounting to nothing it, it, it just it was more it was more of a slogan than anything else, but there was grumbling when they were extended and when they even when they were drafted. Mm-hmm. These guys didn't want to go. I mean, it, it was. I mean, there was no mass resistance. There was. There was. There were. There were conscientious objectors, many of whom were religious, like Jehovah's Witnesses, who had, who had resisted Hitler and had put in concentration camps for it. Mm-hmm. But there were people who uh, had that, and there were COs, uh, conscientious objectors. But there was no massive resistance to it. Um, there was no. Um, you know, saying I'm not going to wear a mask. Ooh, pardon me, but you know, you know, I'm. Not, I mean, the irony of it was the first thing that happened to you when you went into basic training, mm-hmm. because of World War One, you had to learn to wear a gas mask and wear it for hours in training. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was no. Uh, it was interesting, and and people, people, very powerful people, got drafted, and they couldn't get out of it. I mean, they just they, they probably didn't want to, but they. Wait, like the head of the New York Stock Exchange is drafted. Mm-hmm. He has to get on a train and go, you know, on a subway train in Manhattan, go down to the draft center, get on a bus, and they shift them off, set them off to some camp, um, army camp in New Jersey wow. to start basic training. Mm-hmm. And the people that did get exempted, other than people with large families or dependent families, mm-hmm. um, were people who, um, for example, if you were if you were a superintendent in an aircraft factory building aircraft, mm-hmm you were exempt, yeah. but if you were the chairman of the board of a large corporation, you were not exempt unless that corporation was Chrysler, which was building tanks or, you know, somebody like that, but I mean, yeah. you, it was, it, and, um, the amazing thing too is the degree to which, uh, um, an awful lot of people were 4F. It changed us in a lot of ways that they were, they were, they had terrible teeth mm. and there were, Things that changed our diet because of that first draft, there was, there was they found out that a huge number of draftees were lacking in iron, niacin, riboflavin,
2: hmm.
1: all these different minerals and vitamins. and they started, literally the guy would walk in and look healthy, and he realized he had no stamina because he, he was lacking these key things. Wow. So the government started uh, getting the bakery companies to put all these ingredients into the, in the flour. So if you go to the supermarket and buy a buy a bag of enriched flour, uh, that has been enriched with all these elements which were lacking in the diet in 1940 and were bringing huge numbers of people uh, ineligible for service. Hmm. And you didn't hear much complaining about it. I mean, people have been told the government was you know, trying to get all these bakers and got them all to agree to this enriched flour. Hmm. And um, and it was and it was, but it was really to save lives in order to save, to keep people healthy and mm-hmm. um, but it, but to me that was the other interesting thing was finding these these peripheral stories that sort of came out of the out of the narrative mm-hmm. like that about the the, the and the other thing was this sense of serving I mean, they found an awful lot of guys were ineligible uh, for the for the draft because they had bad teeth or no teeth or. Their teeth were in terrible shape, mm-hmm. and there was this whole core of dentists who basically volunteered without pay to fix these guys' teeth mm-hmm. uh, and make them eligible. And, and a lot of them, there was a great trade-off. Like you know, they were in terrible pain, mm-hmm. so you had this also the sense of a country that was even before the war, even before Pearl Harbor, this country that was uh, determined that it wasn't going to get pushed around. It wasn't going to get you know, invaded. And when when Grenville Clark sold the draft, he talked about. He said there'll be a day, if England falls and France falls and the rest of Europe falls, there'll be a day when that Nazi uh will pull up the Potomac River, take mm-hmm. Washington, move to Baltimore, Philadelphia, and then up to New York, and, and basically, uh, we'll be defenseless if so we don't get ready.
0: hmm Yeah. That's a crazy thought, but yeah, it's uh, yeah. You made a yeah. good point. Was there a question, a particular question you wanted to really get an answer for that uh, that you did, but it took a while to, or perhaps you're still, you'd still love to get an answer for it?
1: I no, <laughs> that sounds arrogant to say that. <laughs> but it, but but I, you know, I I I did work on it for a number of years, and I. And I got a lot of help. I got a lot of help. I mean, um, and from professionals and readers, and I had a great editor. You know, a book like this was two major rewrites, uh, two editing, three editings, uh, two copy editings. I mean, and I had people working on it with me. I had a, a couple of, 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 of retired brigadier general in um, the Air Force, uh, uh, but whose knowledge of military history is superb. I, an old friend of mine, he's now just turned ninety-one, mm-hmm. who was in the uh, was in the uh, cavalry in World War Two. Armored, yeah. they were armored by then, but he was the cavalry. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I had him. I had a lot of people read it, and uh, and I sort of felt that I, you know, I I had worked on parts of it right till they uh, submitted the manuscript, but. um I think I felt that I'd come to grips with most of the things I wanted to look at, want to think about. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, the one that still amazes me, I guess there is one thing that still absolutely amazes me, was when we decide we're going to go invade North Africa Mm -hmm. in in October, of uh, of, uh, take on Rommel and help the British. And when that decision is made, we've got to move the huge troops of troops over to... Uh, the, the western shore of Africa North Africa and the Mediterranean mm-hmm. um, how we got those guys there without the Nazis finding us or without them I mean they they, they they had to create one of the reasons we couldn't do it earlier they had to create the, the landing craft we had to create all this stuff for a major amphibious landing mm-hmm. in an area we knew nothing about I mean we you know we hadn't trained there or anything and uh so we had to land these guys and these tanks and, the, and everything else that went with it and, and get them all over there without, the, without being detected. I mean, they leave some left from north. We had some of them up in Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. Some of them were in Newfoundland. Some were in Bermuda. Some were in the Deep South. And, and some were in uh, Newport, Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they moved them out from all these different places. But how that, how we pull that off? without losing ships and without losing men. Hmm. It still it still fascinates me how we pulled that off. Mm-hmm. And the and, and and the and the until sure there was no leak in their head. We hadn't been penetrated by Nazi infiltrators or spies who who could figure this out. Mm-hmm. We did send a decoy uh group over which went up in the north in the North Atlantic mm-hmm. and which made a lot of noise. Uh but um but again, it's you know World War II is an interesting thing for people, not, not only of my age who actually was alive, but younger people. I think is is it still, it's still an amazing story. I mean, we we here we are fighting two huge powers on either ocean, and we'd always believed as a as a country that we were because of the oceans that we were protected that the oceans would protect us forever, and what? and I didn't.
0: Yeah. What was, uh, and this is outside of the scope of the book, but I'm curious what the feeling was when, you know, after the war ended, but then five years later you have the Korean war. I'm just curious, do you recall what people were feeling? You know, was there a sense of sort of sadness that it's just, you know, you thought war would be over for a while, but, uh, it wasn't
1: yeah i i you know it's you, i think i'm gonna sign my pay grade on that one i i because I, again, i was i knew i was older then as a kid and I knew a lot of neighbors and people in my church and stuff who went to korea mm-hmm. and um it wasn't a popular thing and people did it and it was but there was a real hardship to it and it was a real not anger but i mean think in world war two you came back with a great deal of Pride and and you were rewarded with the GI Bill. I think with Korea, uh, I think a lot of the, a lot of people who had to go over again, especially the pilots. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking of Ted Williams. I'm thinking of a lot of the, of course, the most famous, the baseball player, who, who was a pilot, Marine pilot in both World War II and Korea. But there was one line I remember reading was that to me on the aircraft carriers in, in Korea. Um, the pilots had no trouble finding the aircraft area because the sun, sunshine would, would, um, bounce off the bald heads of the, of all the men they brought back who had fought in World War Two, yeah. yeah. And I think, I think that was a lot, I think a lot of the guys felt, Oh, I've already done it. Mm-hmm. And it, but it, but there, but there wasn't massive resistance or really. anything. It didn't, it wasn't. Right, and, and, but, and it was an abstraction in a way. I mean, you, you mean, I remember being a kid, and you'd say Korean War in and, and school, and she'd so say, no, no, it's a police action. It's not a war. Hmm. And technically, that, that's what it was, and, uh, you know.
0: Interesting. So, speaking of the GI Bill, you know, I know these guys were drafted, but uh, what other benefits were they were they offered or given just to keep morale up apart from, you know, good food or f- better food and that sort of thing.
1: I think, again, it was Marshall's brilliance. I think he created in them a spirit that was unbelievable. I'll give you one example. Mm-hmm. When you, when you were, sure you were drafted in, in, um, in 1940 or in 41 before Pearl Harbor, you were handed a thing called the, the, the uh, a soldier's manual. And it was a, it was a, it was written by Marshall and his staff. Marshall was the editor. He wrote this thing. It was very much like the Boy Scout handbook. It was talking to these guys as as citizens, not as people who were there to be ordered and ordered around. And uh, it, you know, it wasn't the traditional military approach of you know historically. You know that you guys are cannon fodder, and you follow our orders, kind of thing. It was Marshall, and one of the brilliant things he does, for example, in the back of his manual for soldiers, he has a whole flying dictionary. He has a thing, you know if you if, you know you're going to go a wall, the a walls in there, over the hills in there, chow is in there, huh. all these terms. And so what what Marshall is doing. And what Marshall and other people are doing and what the world itself is doing is they're developing this sense of co- cohesiveness mm-hmm. that these guys are different. These guys are G.I.s. They're not they're not they're not Revolutionary War soldiers. They're not World War I soldiers. These guys are G.I.s and they have their own cartoonists. And all of this was supported, you know, Malden and Brager, all these World War II cartoonists mm-hmm. who came out of Louisiana. Um, all of these things like uh, the movie industry that, um, there was, some, you know, a guy like Bob Holt in my book is, in my, the book I've written is a big hero. He starts entertaining the troops early in the war. I mean, it, he, and then he, he's with the troops in combat zones and he's John Steinbeck, the great writer who's working for a newspaper writes about the Pope as as a, one of the great heroes of the war because of what he did for the morale of the guys. And it was, um. It was keeping that up. It was it was creating these groups like the uh, the USO, and uh, you know that the, the, and there's a great deal of entertainment. The great feeling these guys had is as as that dreadful as the war was, and how how all consuming it was. Mm-hmm. These guys came out proud, and they and the GI Bill. I had my uncle uncle uh, bought a bought a farm on the GI Bill. He went to yeah. agricultural school and bought a farm. Nice. And he bought, you know, a, a, a the farm that had failed in Upstate New York—an apple orchard, which was a farm with orchards. Mm-hmm. And he bought it, and he brought it back to life. And he, you know, he lived there and worked there. He had formed a construction company as well as the farm. But everywhere you turned, when I was growing up, there would be people who had benefited from the GI Bill. And the college I went to it had a, a huge impact on, you know, the GI Bill. And you look at the. Some of the great universities, and and how they had prospered with the GI Bill guys, like the George Bush Senior, and was a went to Yale for two years on the GI Bill, you know, hmm. and it was um, it, it I I think that that they it was the model for how we should treat our our uh, veterans. Mm-hmm.
0: Did this early group that you studied? Did they also uh, were a lot of them. Uh, put into the Army Air Corps, or was the Air Corps more from the the active duty, the regular army?
1: No, the Air Corps. The Air Corps was uh, it, you. You could re- once you were drafted, you could request the Air Corps. Mm-hmm. And certain people, like Jimmy Stewart, who was probably who failed his physical, failed his physical, and actually put on. This is the morale of the country. He fails his physical because he's underweight. The great actor, or the greatest actor, he just been, won the Academy Award as the greatest uh, actor in the country, you know, in a in film. And he puts on weight just so he can get in the ar- an Army. Mm-hmm. And he's a pilot. He's a great pilot. Mm-hmm. And as soon as he gets in the Army, he passes. He, he has somebody at his movie studio put him on a diet so he can get enough weight on him to go in. Mm-hmm. And, he, and Stuart then goes into the, um, goes to the Army, and within a week he's convinced them to transfer him to the Air Corps. Mm-hmm. So it was based on uh, guys who either had had uh, experience, draftees, or who showed so tremendous aptitude for navigation, any of the air attributes of the air, you know, the, the navig area of navigation, and all these other things, mm-hmm. as well as the pilots and and uh, uh, other functionaries and mechanics and people like that. There. Were, that, that it, there, there was a special group that formed its own elite, mm-hmm. and the funny the Air Corps was uh, actually kept black pilots out, and it was one of the reasons that the black pressure on blacks wanted to fly. There were a lot of black aviators in the country mm-hmm. at that point, point. Okay. and that's the beginning of the Tuskegee Airmen. They finally realized the Air Corps finally realizes these guys really want it, and we got to make a place for them, mm-hmm. and they do. And of course, it's a it's a it's a sad story because of how it happened, but it's a great story about how it it turned out. Because those guys were were particularly um, honored now in in retrospect. Yeah. Uh,
0: apart from just h- filling the historical gap, um, what do you, what do you hope the book will do for readers?
1: I hope it gives them an, a, a, a just a new understanding of how great this country can be when it when it when it's properly led when it's when it's got. uh, Sort of this amazing uh, uh, public citizenship, uh, this this ability, you know, for people to 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 sort of demand to be involved in it and to to win out for the country, I think it's a tonic. I I, people, people, I've talked to people who said, you know, your book made me smile for about two hours when I finished it. (laughs) and And so, I think it's it, it's to bring us back and it's and it's not made up i mean it's fun it's not something I just made up out of the blue mm-hmm. you know it's 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 actually what happened. the arc of the story is you know we won the war, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> uh, and so uh, I just hope it gives people a new realization and and somebody accused me of saying, well, I'm just another one of these people talking about what you know the greatest generation kind of thing is if that's a bad thing to do. I, Mm -hmm. I, am not saying they were the greatest generation, but they were a great generation of of people Mm -hmm. and they, they come out of the depression. They, every reason to be angry. Yeah. You know, they were broke. A lot of them went in and it's the first time they gotten good food Mm -hmm. in their lives in the army.
0: Yeah. So did you have any difficulty? Well, you said the book took a while to write, um, because you were, you worked other projects as well, but uh, were there any difficulties in getting it finished or published?
1: No, no, I had I had a great editor right from the beginning, mm-hmm. I had a great agent, and uh, I had uh, no, no, it wasn't. I, it, you know, I've been doing this for years. It's like. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like asking an architect if he had a great, hard time getting that building built. And, and, you know, i build enough of uh, buildings. Mm-hmm. And my only other military, I did two other military, I did one book called The Bonus Army about the 1932 bonus marchers okay. who were the World War One vets. And I did another book on on um, on the automated battlefield, which is really about uh, Vietnam and Laos and mm-hmm. the Westmoreland, uh, like elect- the first use of, drones, the first use of electronic sensors, widespread and all that. Mm, and, and I did another book called Chow, which was a book about military poop. But, mm. but, um, so it, so it wasn't hard. I mean, I had, and I had, I, I think I had friends. Uh, and I think the people in the military that I talked with or worked with are the people to Marshall foundation. Mm. I think once they realized what I was up to, uh, I think they were really pleased that i was doing it. It wasn't like I was. It was like an exposé. It was. It was basically telling the story. Mm-hmm. And the bad guys in the book are are um, the, the Nazis and the warlords of Japan.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, what's your uh, either current or next writing project?
1: I, I'm playing around with a couple ideas. I, you know, I'm, when in this day and age, especially the coronavirus era, um, working a promoting a book like this is 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 a major job. In other words, um, you know, doing working on different places, doing uh, virtual interviews, doing podcasts, doing all this stuff. And so I'm sort of working on this one from now through Veterans Day, uh, just to make sure that it's you know, spending all this time on it, that it's well-positioned. And it's doing quite nicely now. Yeah. But I want to keep that up. I want to keep feeding them. And I've playing with a couple of ideas. i read a lot of baseball books. I may write something like that. But I'm also, i got to be, I mean, I'm 81 years old, so it's not like i got to prove so <laughs> and do another one. Right. But it'll probably not be anything as ambitious as this. This is this is a major um, flexing of the muscles that I've got left
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, the uh, the rankings on Amazon are very good, um, excellent, in fact.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. Do, uh, where can people find you online? Do you have social media or web page?
1: Oh, I have a web page called Paul Dixon Books, D I C K S O N, pauldixonbooks dot com. Mm-hmm. And I'm um and I'm, I'm, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter and all those things, and people can find me on there. Mm-hmm. But Facebook is probably my best place, and that welcome people joining that we talk about a lot of things not we try not to be political because we get out of that every day and yeah. uh, but sometimes yeah but but it, and i talk about the book a lot because i because i'm getting you know when i get a good review i just got a good review in army magazine and i'll put mm-hmm. a little review up so mm-hmm.
0: and i'll just spell your name for for listeners it's so Paul is P A U L and Dixon is D I C K S O N. Yes, sir. All right. So um, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words?
1: Not really. I just appreciate this, and I and I really appreciate talking to your 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 your, your legions of followers.
0: Good, good. Yeah, yeah. No, it was uh, really interesting stuff um, that that you brought up. So yeah, I appreciate your time as well. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more military history ranging from the ancient to the modern, please visit warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep track of my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. Thanks for listening.